0: Then he returned to his hometown, Nazareth. This was a typical Sabbath in Nazareth. On the Sabbath day, all good Jews attended the gathering at the local synagogue. Everybody was there. They didn't have kids' soccer or swim programs, or they didn't have professional teams like the Packers or Seahawks. They didn't have weekend activities like water skiing and boating and hiking and skiing and camping. Fishing was work, so nobody fished on the Sabbath. Sabbath. So everybody was in church. Everybody was in church on the Sabbath. Nazareth was a small town, so everybody knew everybody else. And it was our custom, as we saw, to ask someone to stand up and read the passage of of the day and then talk about it, just to say a few words. Everybody knew Jesus. He was 30 years old. He'd grown up in this town. Everybody knew knew Jesus. Joseph's son, the local carpenter, Probably, he had probably done work for everybody in town. And there were rumors that were circulating at this point in time that Jesus had taken on the role of teacher or prophet or something. He was doing miracles, signs, and wonders. But he was just a hometown boy. He was just a hometown guy. So he was asked to read the scripture that day, and he stood up and read the scroll he unrolled it until he reached Isaiah 61. 60, Isaiah 61 was a very familiar passage to all of them. They all knew the passage. It was about the promised Messiah. The Messiah was going to deliver Israel from all her enemies and set up the ruling dynasty of the house of David. Jesus read this passage but shot, stopped short of the last sentence, the day of the vengeance of our God. He didn't include that. We'll talk about it later. Then he shocked the entire gathering by speaking eight words. It was a really short sermon. Some of you wish I'd stick to about eight words. I know that. Eight words of the sermon. He said this He said, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus made a lot of statements in his three year ministry. Many of this these had to do with his identity of who he was. This gives us a picture of how shocking this was to the people of that day. That's why I wanted to see this clip, wanted us to see the clip, because it was a shock to their system. Jesus made some incredible claims. We're going to look today at Jesus' mission, because that's included in a two-verse segment. But before we look at his mission... I want to look at who Jesus claimed to be. We're in this series about Jesus, and it's very important that we understand who Jesus claimed he was. Here, he claimed to be the Messiah. And with that claim, he made himself equal with God. It says Jesus spoke, and the people were happy. Jesus spoke, and they wanted to kill him. Um, in this, this passage, it says, when you read the text, they spoke well of him, which can also mean They spoke against him. They were amazed, which can mean pleasantly surprised or shocked. But the angry reaction that he received demonstrates that the people of Nazareth knew exactly what he was saying and what it implied. He said, the spirit of the Lord is on me, which was obvious by the works that he had already done. Something supernatural was going on in Nazareth right now. Jesus claimed deity at other times, too. When we look at John 8, Jesus said, if you knew me, you'd know the Father. He said, before Abraham was born, I am. A claim to deity that followed by an attempt to actually stone him. Jesus made some outrageous, outrageous claims, and they were especially outrageous to the people of his day and to the people of our day. If we are to be followers of Jesus, this is where we must start. We've got to start with Jesus and take his claims seriously. Some, some people today claim to believe in Jesus but are not willing to say that Jesus was anything other than a great philosopher, or a remarkable teacher, and that Jesus never claimed to be God. That's not true. People don't get killed for being a nice teacher. But if you claim to be God, that was blasphemy and under Jewish law, deserving of death. Jesus clearly made somebody mad all throughout his ministry. This was just the first of many instances. As followers of Jesus, we must understand the incredible claims that Jesus made for himself. And we can draw several conclusions about Jesus, really only three, only three. None of these conclusions, none of this points to Jesus as a great moral teacher. Jesus gave us only three options, literally. Number one, he was a lunatic. Option one, he was delusional like people today who claim to be President Lincoln or Amelia Earhart or Elvis Presley. He's crazy, okay? So he claimed to be the Messiah. Was he a lunatic? Secondly, he was a liar. This would mean Jesus was sane, and he knew his claims to be false, but he tried to pass himself off as a son of God. So lunatic lunatic is a liar. Or the third option, really the only third option we have, is Lord. Lord. Real man and real God. The person he claimed to be, the son of God, equal with God, one and the same. And this is the starting point of Jesus' mission. And it's a starting point of our mission. If we do not believe Jesus was God, we have nothing to offer our world. Jesus is Lord and Jesus is God. So then what did Jesus say his mission was? We find it in verses 18 and 19. Verses 18 and 19 of this passage in Luke 4. And we have this on, yeah, there it is up on the projection as well. Luke 4, verses 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of the sight for the blind to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Five parts to his mission. It's important that we not only understand Jesus' identity, but what his mission was because it's our mission as well. Now, before we get into specific, specifics about this passage, this passage is used to promote all kinds of ideas from liberation theology to social action and social justice, ministry to the poor and the downtrodden. When Jesus came, he came to build a kingdom in the spiritual realm, not the physical realm, spiritual. But it works its way out in the physical realm. But that's not the starting point. Jesus did not start food banks and soup kitchens. The people wanted to. Him, too, after he fed the 5,000, they thought, this is, a, this is a great deal. Maybe he'll do this for all of us. He didn't set up a welfare system to care for the poor. He didn't establish government programs. Jesus came to change hearts, which then produced good works. It's his mission. There was an article in Christianity Today that was entitled Lost Mission. said, we must save the soul, then save the body. They said evangelical Christians can do both. In the 1970s, many of you remember after the, the Vietnam War and the Cambodian massacre, all the stuff that was going on in Southeast Asia. Cambodian people were fleeing the repressive communist regime in Southeast Asia. And thousands and thousands of refugees were fleeing across the border into Thailand. The predominant religions of that region were Hinduism and Buddhism. Hinduism and Buddhism. And there were several agencies that were setting up and working refugee camps along the border. They were feeding, sheltering, and clothing all these homeless people. And when they looked at the groups that were doing this, all of these groups that were ministering life to these homeless refugees fleeing communism were Christian groups. They were asked, why are the other religious groups absent? And they replied, well, you know, Hindus have a caste system, so they just believe this is their lot in life. Buddhists believe they're just experiencing bad karma. They must have done something bad in their past life. But Christianity, with its offer of unconditional love and grace, was rescuing the masses of people in need. Worldview matters. But so does heart change. Jesus came to change hearts. He came to change hearts. Who started all the ministries to the poor in America? Almost predominantly Christian churches. Who started all the schools and institutions of higher learning, including Harvard and Yale? Christian churches. Churches. Who founded hospitals in America and sent medical missions throughout the world? Christian churches. We can go on and on. The result of heart change is always social action. But social action cannot replace internal heart transformation. Or we've given up our primary mission. So what was Jesus' mission? Five phrases. The first one, preach good news to the poor. What is this good news? What is good news? The good news that he was preaching is that God loves you. You matter to God. There's a God who's searching for restoration of relationship with you as an individual, as a people. God has a plan for you. And even if you do not have a relationship with God, he's taken steps to establish that relationship with you. Even though we're rebels by nature, we want to run our own life, we want to leave God out of it. We've done a lot of wrong things. The good news is that Jesus came to establish our relationship with God. He paid for all the wrong things we have done, called sin. We did the crime. He did the time by dying for us. And if we ask for forgiveness, accept God's forgiveness and make him the leader of our life, he will change us, transform us from the inside out. That is good news. Good news. And this good news is to be declared, preached, and proclaimed. To the poor. Now, what does that mean? Who who are the poor? Who are the poor? Author Kenneth Bailey wrote a book entitled Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. And he writes that in the Hebrew language, there are two words for poor. Two words for poor. One is ani, which is translated poor, literally, and anah which is translated meek, meek. They are used nearly interchangeably in the book of Isaiah. Ani is translated the people with not enough to eat. Ana is translated the humble and pious who seek God. One is physical, one is spiritual. And the conclusion is that poor in this context means Those who, as he says, and I quote, those who tremble at the word of God or those who are humble and pious who seek God. So this isn't physically poor. These are people who are poor. Jesus talked about those that are poor in spirit. Our mission is to tell the good news to the poor, the needy, those who seek after God, the spiritually hungry and spiritually seeking. Poor in spirit, those who are empty spiritually and impoverished in spirit. Those who are spiritually empty, those who lack purpose, they have no direction. And all you have to do is look at people around you. Empty eyes and empty faces, empty lives. They might be wealthy physically, but poor, bankrupt, spiritually. The second one is proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Freedom for the prisoners. Being a prisoner means losing your freedom, your autonomy, being held against our wills. It's it's a loss of control. This refers to, to justice advocacy as in refugees going home. Release to captives is understood to mean the freedom to return home. The context is the year of Jubilee in which all slaves were released. Debts were canceled and prisoners were set free. And the picture here, as he paints it, is the age of the Messiah, which is Jehovah's time for bestowing great blessings on his people. Now, if you go visit someone in prison, as I have, you will discover that someone else controls almost every part of their life. Few choices, no freedom. Here, Jesus is not speaking of prisoners in the physical sense of incarceration, He's speaking of people in bondage in many ways. Physically, financially, servitude, owned by someone or something else. Prisoner has the connotation of prisoner of war. When I think of prisoners of war, I recall seeing film clips of prisoners of war living in Nazi death, death camps during World War II. Hungry, malnourished, starving, tortured, and dying. And there are people all around us. Who are starving, they're tortured, they're leading lives of desperation. Maybe they're prisoners of circumstances, prisoners of addiction, prisoners of habits, prisoners of guilt, prisoners of their past, prisoners of fear. They may be poor, they may be middle class, they may be rich. All are imprisoned and need to be set free. Jesus came to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Jesus, by virtue of his power and position, was to issue an edict. He was going to say, freedom, I'm setting you free. And his proclamation, his stating it, actually made it so. Jesus said, I'm going to proclaim you are free. Not long ago, there was a judge that ordered a prisoner who had been held for 20 years and to be released by, from prison because he had been found to be innocent. And what set the prisoner free? The proclamation by the judge, you are free. You are free. It's his statement. It's a proclamation. Jesus sets that statement up and says, you are free. What kinds of things hold you prisoner? Jesus proclaims freedom for us. Our mission is to verbally proclaim freedom for those who need to be set free. The prisoners of war need to know that the war's been won. They're free to go, they're free to enter into all the incredible blessings that God has intended for the people of God. So freedom. Thirdly, he proclaimed recovery of sight to the blind. Recovery of sight to the blind. A friend of mine told me about a very frightening experience he had while fishing offshore the Washington coast. While they were fishing off the coast, in a five-minute period, a huge fog bank rolled in. It happened so fast, they didn't didn't have time to, to gather their bearings. All of a sudden, they were just surrounded by fog. Total loss of sense of direction. The water was choppy. They couldn't tell direction from the waves. They could hear fog horns and boat whistles and all kinds of things, but they were rendered totally blind by the fog. He shared his feelings of total helplessness and a sense of danger. You can't see. You can't see. Fortunately, they actually had a compass on board so they could at least head in the right direction, which was east. And they finally made it to shore. I don't know if you've ever experienced that in the physical realm, but there are many people today... They feel as if their lives have been taken over by a fog bank, choppy seas, no visibility, noises, danger are all around them, lost. What do I do? what do I, you know and some of us here may feel that way today. Jesus is talking about the kind of blindness that affects everything we do. He came to break through that fog to bring light and truth to remove blindness. 2 Corinthians 4 says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers, so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Our mission is to pray, to bring the truth, speak the truth, proclaim recovery of sight to the blind. Fourthly, to release the oppressed, to release the oppressed. The downtrodden, those who are bruised or wounded, literally means to break in pieces, the brokenhearted or people with brokenness, the walking wounded. I'll tell you, if there's one thing that's common, somebody asked me a couple years ago, what's the biggest challenge in ministry today? What's the biggest challenge that you can see? I said the predominance of brokenness. Broken people, broken lives, where is the intact health of our culture, of our marriages, of our families, of our institutions, of our cities, where it's broken, it's just so broken. And he said, we're here to proclaim healing to those that are broken. How many people do you have in your area of relationship that are just these walking wounded? Death in a family, a divorce, fired from a job, an abusive situation at home, suffered a miscarriage, dealing with infertility, broken lives, broken relationships, shattered dreams, hopeless. Jesus came to mend broken lives. Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall. Humpty... Dumpty had a great fall. And all the king's horses and all the king's men could not put Humpty, Dumpty back together again. All the powers of our modern society, all the technology, science, engineering, cannot put broken lives back together again. But Jesus can. That's why he came. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5 says this. Though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. That's how healing happens. And finally, the fifth phrase describing Jesus' mission To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That God's kingdom has arrived. These words are like a trumpet blast of God's good news. Into this world of misery and brokenness and want, the power of God is broken in through Jesus. Jesus came to set up his kingdom. To destroy the works of the devil. God's rule is established. God's kingdom has arrived. He said, I'm here to proclaim the Lord's favor, and of course, the Jews in that day, the kingdom was going to look different than anything they imagined. They were waiting for the Messiah to set up the Davidic reign and get rid of the Romans and be back in freedom. That's a physical, political, whatever solution. Said, "No, the kingdom is in the hearts of men and women." Jesus claims, and our our claim, Jesus' mission. How did people respond? How do we respond today? Our response. What Jesus did was outside the box. These people understood that this is how God operates. I don't know how much you think you know how God operates. I think I do. You know, At least I want to know, and I think I know, and we think we know how God operates. These people had their understanding of God who he was and how he operated they had done the same thing for the last 400 years their god was manageable he was predictable and knowable jesus just didn't fit their box didn't fit the box their expectations of the messiah were different besides wasn't wasn't this guy joseph's son he's my neighbor he's my cousin He was my carpenter. He fixed our dining room table. Who does he think he is? An amazing, mind-blowing awareness. These people were too familiar with, with what they thought Jesus was and what they thought the Messiah was. Sometimes we think we know God so well. We know how he operates, and when he doesn't do it, the right way we get upset and say, what's wrong? He gives two illustrations. Elijah rejected by the Jews, so he went to a Gentile widow. And Elisha rejected by Israel, so he healed a Naaman the Syrian. It's very interesting. And the implication to them was clear. And, and, and I think this is part of a warning to us. As a church of Jesus Christ, we need to accept God's work and figure out what is it that God is calling us to do and be, or he's going to go somewhere else. Say, God, use us to make a difference. Because if we're not open to being used of God in his way and how he wants, he'll go somewhere else. Now, the one key point, and this was what irked the rabbi so much, He didn't quote the last phrase of that passage in Isaiah 61. And for the Jew, this was the most important phrase there was. And that was, the day of the Lord's favor is here, the day of vengeance of our God. See, the Jews thought the Messiah was coming for them, for their benefit. And of course, the irony is that their rejection of the Messiah spread the message and love elsewhere. But Jesus was not bringing the vengeance of God. He was bringing the grace. The grace of God. Love and forgiveness. Nazareth was longing for the day of vengeance against her enemies. Jesus turned the text of judgment into a text of mercy. God's judgment was instead reserved for the people of God, the Jews, because they rejected Jesus, God had something great to do outside their box of understanding and experience. He was talking to the insiders. Who are the insiders today for to say, is God talking to us as insiders, the church? God wants to do something special here in Eau Claire. Through this church, What he's doing may be outside our box of experience, outside our box of understanding, outside our box of comfort zone, outside the box of our personal preference and tastes. But it's God's work. And most often, he works outside the boxes that we create for him. God wants to do something. What's our response? Two possible responses. First is accept and embrace. Accept what God is doing. Embrace what God wants to do support it, pray for it, and experience God's blessing. The second one, which most of these people in the video, was rejection. Rejection. The mission. Jesus established his mission right there. And I challenge you to accept the challenge. It's preaching the good news to the poor, freedom to the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, Releasing the oppressed and proclaiming not a message of judgment, condemnation, or vengeance, but a message of Jesus, which is love, grace, acceptance, and forgiveness. The mission. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you set the example for us. We don't always understand what you're doing or why, but we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you set up your mission, and I pray as we become part of that mission that you would use us as individuals at home, at work, in our neighborhood, wherever that is, as a church to bring the grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ, in Jesus' name.